Good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to Because I'm the Worst Kind of Person. My name is Kate, and I'm here to guide you through the one and only Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Last week, we were introduced to M. Muriel, the socialist bishop. We learned about his respectful but not quite equal relationship with his sister, Mademoiselle Baptistine, and their housekeeper, Madame Magloret, who I'm pretty sure are girlfriends. Just putting that out there. We heard all about the bishop's budgeting systems, as well as what some random-ass unnamed senator thinks of them. Victor played a fun game where he saw how many times he could make me say Episcopal in a minute. I mispronounced diocese about 18 times because I was not raised Catholic and I've only ever read it. And you all enjoyed me totally decimating lists of French names. Or at least I'm assuming you did, because why else would you have come back? This whole book is in French, folks, and it ain't getting any better. This week's author fact is that Victor Hugo was on the French five-franc note from 1959 to 1966. My brain keeps wanting to switch those around so it says 1956 to 1969, but it's just not in the cards to have the sex number in there. So without dilly-dallying any further, let's jump back in. Chapter 3. A Hard Bishop Brick for a Good Bishop The bishop did not omit his pastoral visits because he had converted his carriage into alms. The Diocese of D is a fatiguing one. There are very few plains and a great many mountains. Hardly any roads, as we have just seen. 32 curacies, 41 vicarships, and 285 auxiliary chapels. To visit all these is quite a task. The bishop managed to do it. A fucking car is coming. I honestly can't tell. There's like so much wind today. I really apologize for audio quality. It might just be really shitty this episode. The bishop managed to do it. He went on foot when it was in the neighborhood, in a tilted spring cart when it was on the plain, and on a donkey in the mountains. The two old women accompanied him. When the trip was too hard for them, he went alone. One day, he arrived at Senez, which is an ancient Episcopal city. He was mounted on an ass. (laughs) Oh my god, I'm six years old. I'm sorry, guys. He was mounted on an ass. His purse, which was very dry at that moment, did not permit him any other equipage. The mayor of the town came to receive him at the gate of the town and watched him dismount from his ass with scandalized eyes. Some of the citizens were laughing around him. Monsieur the mayor, said the bishop, and monsieur's citizens, I perceive that I shock you. You think it very arrogant in a poor priest to ride an animal which was used by Jesus Christ. I have done so from necessity, I assure you, and not vanity. In the course of these trips, he was kind and indulgent, and talked rather than preached. He never went far in search of his arguments and his examples. He quoted to the inhabitants of one district the example of a neighboring district, because that's what everybody loves is to be compared to their neighbors. In the cantons where they were harsh to the poor, he said, Look at the people of Bryancon. I'm pretty sure I'm saying that wrong, but that sounds like a hell of a convention. They have conferred on the poor, on widows, and orphans the right to have their meadows mown three days in advance of everyone else. They rebuild their houses for them gratuitously when they are ruined. Therefore, it is a country which is blessed by God. For a whole century, there has not been a single murder among them. In villages which were greedy for profit and harvest, he said, Look at the people of Embrun. If at the harvest season the father of a family has his son away on service in the army and his daughters at service in the town, and he is ill and incapacitated, the cure recommends him to the prayers of the congregation. And on Sunday, after the Mass, all the inhabitants of the village, men, women, and children, go to the poor man's field and do his harvesting for him, and carry his straw and his grain to his granary. To families divided by questions of money and inheritance, he said, 
Look at the mountaineers of Duvalny, a country so wild that the nightingale is not heard there once in fifty years. Well, when the father of a family dies, the boys go off to seek their fortune, leaving the property to the girls so that they may find husbands. To the cantons which had a taste for lawsuits, where the farmers ruined themselves in stamped paper, he said, Look at those good peasants in the valley of Quiris. There are three thousand souls of them. Mon Dieu, it's like a little republic. Neither judge nor bailiff is known there. The mayor does everything. He allots the imposts, taxes each person conscientiously, judges quarrels for nothing, divides inheritances without charge, pronounces sentences gratuitously, and he is obeyed, because he is a just man among simple men. To villages where he found no schoolmaster, he quoted once more the people of Quiris. Do you know how they manage, he said? Since a little country of a dozen or fifteen hearths cannot always support a teacher, they have schoolmasters who are paid by the whole valley, who make the round of the villages, spending a week in this one, ten days in that, and instruct them. These teachers go to the fairs, I have seen them there. They are to be recognized by the quill pens which they wear in the cord of their hat. Those who teach reading only have one pen, and those who teach reading and reckoning have two pens. Those who teach reading, reckoning, and Latin have three pens. Ah, yes, the three R's, reading, reckoning, and Latin. But what a disgrace to be ignorant. Do like the people of Quiris. Thus he discoursed gravely and paternally. In default of examples, he invented parables, going directly to the point with few phrases and many images, which characteristic formed the real eloquence of Jesus Christ. And being convinced himself, he was persuasive. Gotta love that heart cell. End of chapter three. Chapter four. Works corresponding to words. His conversation was gay and affable, and isn't that just what all of us are aiming for? He put himself on a level with the two old women who had passed their lives beside him. When he laughed, it was the laugh of a schoolboy. Madame Magloire liked to call him your grace. One day he rose from his armchair and went to his library in search of a book. This book was on one of the upper shelves. As the bishop was rather short of stature, he could not reach it. Madame Magloire, said he, fetch me a chair. My greatness does not reach as far as that shelf. That is me trying to get crackers out of the pantry. One of his distant relatives, Madame la Comtesse de Lowe, rarely allowed an opportunity to escape of enumerating in his presence what she designated as the expectations of her three sons. She had numerous relatives who were very old and near to death, and of whom her sons were the natural heirs. The youngest of the three was to receive from a grand aunt a good hundred thousand livers of income. The second was the heir by entail to the title of the duke, his uncle. The eldest was to succeed to the peerage of his grandfather. The bishop was accustomed to listen in silence to these innocents and pardonable maternal boasts. On one occasion, however, he appeared to be more thoughtful than usual when Madame de Lowe was relating once again the details of all these inheritances and all these expectations. She interrupted herself impatiently. Mon Dieu, cousin, what are you thinking about? I am thinking, replied the bishop, of a singular remark which is to be found, I believe, in St. Augustine. Place your hopes in the man from whom you do not inherit. At another time, on receiving a notification of the decease of a gentleman of the countryside, wherein not only the dignities of the dead man, but also the feudal and noble qualifications of his relatives spread over an entire page, what a stout back death has, he exclaimed. What a strange burden of titles is cheerfully imposed on him, and how much wit must men have in order to thus press the tomb into the service of vanity. I have to disagree with him on this point, like, list everything I've ever done on my tombstone. Either that or leave it blank, both are acceptable. He was gifted on occasion with a gentle raillery, which almost always concealed a serious meaning. In the course of one Lent, 
a youthful vicar came to D and preached in the cathedral. He was tolerably eloquent. The subject of his sermon was charity. He urged the rich to give to the poor in order to avoid hell, which he depicted in the most frightful manner of which he was capable, and to win paradise, which he represented as charming and desirable. Among the audience, there was a wealthy retired merchant, who was somewhat of a usurer, named M. Geobrand. I'm realizing now that every time there's an M, it just stands for Monsieur, but I'm just going to keep saying M because I'm a filthy American. Among the audience, there was a wealthy retired merchant who was somewhat of a usurer named M. Geobrand, who had amassed two millions in the manufacture of coarse cloth, serges, and wooden galloons. That's a fun word. Never in his whole life had M. Geobrand bestowed alms on any poor wretch. After the delivery of that sermon, it was observed that he gave a sou every Sunday to the poor old beggar woman at the door of the cathedral. There were six of them to share it. One day, the bishop caught sight of him in the act of bestowing this charity and said to his sister with a smile, There is M. Geobrand purchasing paradise for a sou. When it was a question of charity, he was not to be rebuffed even by a refusal, and on such occasions he gave utterance to remarks which induced reflection. Once he was begging for the poor in a drawing room of the town, there was present the Marquis de Champsierre, a wealthy and avaricious old man who contrived to be, at one and the same time, an ultra-royalist and an ultra-voltarian. This variety of man has actually existed. When the bishop came to him, he touched his arm. You must give me something, M. le Marquis. The Marquis turned round and answered dryly, I have poor people of my own, Monseigneur. Give them to me, replied the bishop. One day he preached the following sermon in the cathedral. My very dear brethren, my good friends, there are thirteen hundred and twenty thousand peasants' dwellings in France which have but three openings. Eighteen hundred and seventeen thousand hovels which have but two openings, the door and one window, and three hundred and forty-six thousand cabins besides which have but one opening, the door. And this arises from a thing which is called the tax on doors and windows. Just put poor families, old women and little children in those buildings, and behold the fevers and maladies which result. Alas, God gives air to men, the law sells it to them. I do not blame the law, but I bless God. In the departments of the Isier, in the Var, in the two departments of the Alps, the Hauts, and the Bases, the peasants have not even wheelbarrows. They transport their manure on the backs of men. They have no candles, and they burn resinous sticks, and bits of rope dipped in pitch. That is the state of affairs throughout the whole of the hilly country of Dauphine. They make bread for six months at one time. They bake it with dried cow dung. In the winter, they break this bread up with an axe, and they soak it for twenty-four hours in order to render it eatable. My brethren, have pity. Behold the suffering on all sides of you. Born a provincial, he easily familiarized himself with the dialect of the South. He said, Oh, Jesus, more French. Here we go. He said, On bi mosu sage, as in lower Languedoc. Ante anaras passa, as in the base Alps. Porte un boen motu embe un boen fromage gras, as in upper Dauphine. This pleased the people extremely, and contributed not a little to win him access to all spirits. He was perfectly at home in the thatched cottage and in the mountains. He understood how to say the grandest things in the most vulgar of idioms. He spoke all tongues and entered into all hearts. Isn't that really what we want, though, is just like a priest who speaks only in innuendos? Moreover, he was the same towards people of the world and towards the lower classes. He condemned nothing in haste and without taking circumstances into account. He said, examine the road over which the fault has passed. 
Being, as he described himself with a smile, an ex-sinner, he had none of the asperities of austerity, which is a fun rhyme, and he professed with a good deal of distinctness and without the frown of the ferociously virtuous, a doctrine which may be summed up as follows. Man has upon him his flesh, which is at once his burden and his temptation. He drags it with him and yields to it. He must watch it, check it, repress it, and obey it only at the last extremity. There may be some fault even in his obedience, but the fault thus committed is venial. It is a fall, but a fall in the knees which may terminate in prayer. Oh, that sounds just like just a million Facebook memes my mom has shown me. To be a saint is the exception. To be an upright man is the rule. Err, fall, if sin you will, but be upright. The least possible sin is the law of man. No sin at all is the dream of the angel. All which is terrestrial is subject to sin. Sin is a gravitation. When he saw everyone exclaiming very loudly and growing angry very quickly, Oh, oh, he said with a smile. To all appearance, this is a great crime which all the world commits. These are hypocrisies which have taken fright and are in haste to make protest and to put themselves under shelter. He was indulgent towards women and poor people on whom the burden of human society rests. He said, The faults of women, of children, of the feeble, the indigent, and the ignorant are the faults of the husbands, the fathers, the masters, the strong, the rich, and the wise. He said, moreover, Teach those who are ignorant as many things as possible. Society is culpable in that it does not afford instruction gratis. It is responsible for the night which it produces. This soul is full of shadow. Sin is therein committed. The guilty one is not the person who has committed the sin, but the person who has created the shadow. It will be perceived that he had a peculiar manner of his own judging things. I suspect that he obtained it from the gospel. Oh, that's a burn. That is a burn right there. One day he heard a criminal case, which was in preparation and on the port of trial discussed in a drawing room. A wretched man, being at the end of his resources, had coined counterfeit money out of love for a woman, and for the child which he had had by her. Counterfeiting was still punishable with death at that epoch. The woman had been arrested in the act of passing the first false piece made by the man. She was held, but there were no proofs except against her. She alone could accuse her lover and destroy him by her confession. She denied. They insisted. She persisted in her denial. Man, get you, get you a girl like that. Thereupon, an idea occurred to the attorney for the crown. He invented an infidelity on the part of the lover and succeeded by means of fragments of letters cunningly presented in persuading the unfortunate woman that she had a rival and the man was deceiving her. Thereupon, exasperated by jealousy, she denounced her lover, confessed all, proved all. The man was ruined. He was shortly to be tried at eye with his accomplice. They were relating the matter, and each one was expressing enthusiasm over the cleverness of the magistrate. By bringing jealousy into play, he had caused the truth to burst forth in wrath. He had deduced the justice of revenge. This is why we don't trust lawyers, folks. The bishop listened to all this in silence. When they had finished, he inquired, Where are this man and woman to be tried? At the court of assizes. It's spelled like assizes, and I doubt that's right. And again, I'm six. Hi. At the court of assize. I'm pretty sure that's it. At the court of assize, he went on. And where will the advocate of the crown be tried? Ooh. A tragic event occurred at D. A man was condemned to death for murder. He was a wretched fellow, not exactly educated, not exactly ignorant, who had been a mountebank at fairs and a writer for the public. The town took a great interest in the trial. On the eve of the day fixed for the execution of the condemned man, the chaplain of the prison fell ill. A priest was needed to attend the criminal in his last moments. They sent for the cure. 
It seems that he refused to come, saying, That is no affair of mine. I have nothing to do with that unpleasant task and with that mountebank. I, too, am ill, and besides, it's not my place. This reply was reported to the bishop, who said, Monsieur le cure is right. It is not his place. It is mine. He went instantly to the prison, descended to the cell of the mountebank, and called him by name, and took him by the hand, and spoke to him. He passed the entire day with him, forgetful of food and sleep, praying to God for the soul of the condemned man, and praying the condemned man for his own. He told him the best truths, which are also the most simple. (sighs) I fucking hate the phrase plain and simple truths. He was father, brother, friend. He was bishop only to bless. He taught him everything, encouraged and consoled him. The man was on the point of dying in despair. Death was an abyss to him. As he stood trembling on its mournful brink, he recoiled with horror. He was not sufficiently ignorant to be absolutely indifferent. His condemnation, which had been a profound shock, had in a manner broken through here and there, that wall which separates us from the mystery of things and which we call life. He gazed incessantly beyond this world through these fatal breaches and beheld only darkness. The bishop made him see light. On the following day, when they came to fetch the unhappy wretch, the bishop was still there. He followed him and exhibited himself to the eyes of the crowd in his purple camel and with his episcopal cross upon his neck, side by side with the criminal bound with cords. He mounted the tumbrel with him. He mounted the scaffold with him. The sufferer, who had been so gloomy and cast down on the preceding day, was radiant. He felt that his soul was reconciled, and he hoped in God. The bishop embraced him, and at the moment when the knife was about to fall, he said to him, God raises from the dead him whom man slays. He whom his brothers have rejected finds his father once more. Pray, believe, enter into life. The father is there. When he descended from the scaffold, there was something in his look which made the people draw aside to let him pass. They did not know that which was worthy of admiration, his pallor or his serenity. On his return to the humble dwelling which he designated with a smile as his palace, he said to his sister, I have just officiated pontifically. Since the most sublime things are often those which are the least understood, there were people in the town who said, when commenting on this conduct of the bishop, it is affectation. This, however, was a remark which was confined to the drawing-rooms. The populace, which perceives no jest in holy deeds, was touched and admired him. As for the bishop, it was a shock to him to have beheld the guillotine, and it was a long time before he recovered from it. In fact, when the scaffold is there, all erected and prepared, it has something about it which produces hallucination. One may feel a certain indifference to the death penalty, one may refrain from pronouncing on it, from saying yes or no so long as one has not seen a guillotine with one's own eyes, but if one encounters one of them, the shock is violent. One is forced to decide and to take part for or against. Some admire it, like Demaistre. Others execrate it, like Beccaria. The guillotine is the consecration of the law. It is called vindict. It is not neutral, and it does not permit you to remain neutral. He who sees it shivers with the most mysterious of shivers. All social problems erect their interrogation point around this chopping knife. The scaffold is a vision. The scaffold is not a piece of carpentry. The scaffold is not a machine. The scaffold is not an inert bit of mechanism constructed of wood, iron, and cords. It seems as though it were a being, possessed of I know not what somber initiative. One would say that this piece of carpenter's work saw, that this machine heard, that this mechanism understood, that this wood, this iron, and these cords were possessed of will. In the frightful meditation into which its presence casts the soul, the scaffold appears in terrible guise, and as though taking part in what is going on. The scaffold is the accomplice of the executioner. It devours. It eats flesh. It drinks blood. The scaffold is a sort of monster fabricated by the judge and the carpenter, 
a specter which seems to live with a horrible vitality composed of all the death which it has inflicted. Therefore, the impression was terrible and profound. On the day following the execution, and on many succeeding days, the bishop appeared to be crushed. The almost violent serenity of the funereal moment had disappeared. The phantom of social justice tormented him. That's the real agenda, am I right, guys? I want to be a phantom of social justice. He who generally returned from all his deeds with a radiant satisfaction seemed to be reproaching himself. At times he talked to himself and stammered lugubrious. Oh, that's such a good word, lugubrious. At times he talked to himself and stammered lugubrious monologues in a low voice. This is one which his sister overheard one evening and preserved. I did not think that it was so monstrous. It is wrong to become absorbed in the divine law to such a degree as not to perceive human law. Death belongs to God alone. By what right do men touch that unknown thing? Man, I, I am not currently depressed, but I know when I am, I am nowhere near that eloquent. In course of time, these impressions weakened and probably vanished. Nevertheless, it was observed that the bishop thenceforth avoided passing the place of execution. M. Muriel could be summoned at any hour to the bedside of the sick and dying. He did not ignore the fact that therein lay his greatest duty and his greatest labor. Widowed and orphaned families had no need to summon him. He came of his own accord. He understood how to sit down and hold his peace for long hours besides the man who had lost the wife of his love, of the mother who had lost her child. As he knew the moment for silence, he also knew the moment for speech. O oh, admirable consoler, he sought not to efface sorrow by forgetfulness, but to magnify and dignify it by hope. He said, Have a care of the manner in which you turn towards the dead. Think not that which perishes. Gaze steadily. You will perceive the living light of your well-beloved dead in the depths of heaven. He knew that faith is wholesome. He sought to counsel and calm the despairing man by pointing out to him the resigned man, and to transform the grief which gazes upon a grave by showing him the grief which fixes its gaze upon a star. And that is the end of chapter four. Well, that was appropriately spooky. So we had some excellent roasts, which is always welcome. We had a lot of death and spooky stuff in there. Lots of grieving. Not really, like, Halloween appropriate, more in, like, respectful, mournful death, but also, it's Halloween time, and I'm gay, so I'm going to talk about Halloween time. Had an interesting monologue about the death penalty in there. Yeah, so just more examples of this guy found his calling, and goddamn if he's not gonna do it. Um, he's short, which I appreciate. Short gang represent. He's overall just, like, a great guy. Very Mary Sue of him to be like that. A lot of social commentary, but that's pretty par for the course for a Hugo novel. And a nice focus on grief and how to help grieving in the end there. We definitely get an anti-law stance already this early in the book. Again, I have very limited knowledge about this, but I know the whole loaf of bread thing or whatever. So it's very much anti-establishment, anti-state, anti-law. Not like anarchy, but like kindness before legality. Which fucks. We appreciate that. Very poetic, very ekphrastic to coin a $10 word there. Uh, the lines comparing the bishop to the condemned man. It's very vivid. Very much supposed to endear us to him, as well as to these criminals, which is, a, again, a theme throughout the book. 
Not as many French names this time, which I appreciated because I'm a stupid American and I can't say them. The Court of Ass Sizes was pretty great. I read that wrong the first time. I'm very sorry. Yes, very much. He puts his money where his mouth is. He's found his niche and he's gonna stay here. By golly. He probably wouldn't say a goddammit because he is a priest, after all. Next segment is This Week in Modern-ish Media. The part of the show where I prove that I'm not just some extremely lame time traveler who couldn't be bothered to consume anything outside of her own time period. As I mentioned earlier, it's the Halloween season. Halloween's my favorite holiday and one month is not long enough to celebrate it, so I start in September. Also, this is when all the stores start putting out, like, pumpkins and Halloween decorations, and I am a sucker for that shit. Um, anyway, I've decided this year I'm going to watch a lot of horror movies, because I've never really gotten to do that for lots of reasons, such as being told that watching R-rated movies is a sin, and also, you know, being the oldest sibling. I don't really get to make a lot of decisions about what gets watched, especially if it's more adult content, you know? But this year, I am moved out of my house, I've got a few days off of school, so I'm just going to go... Nuts. This week, I watched Jennifer's Body and Carrie, both for the first time, so if you don't want any spoilers for those, go ahead and hit the skip button a couple times. Um, I'm going to just talk about these like you guys have already seen them, because I don't want to summarize anymore. I thought they'd be great to watch together, since they're both movies about monstrous teen girls that end in a blood-soaked prom, and, you know, they complement each other. It seems like a pair that you'd watch together. That is not so. I made the mistake of watching Jennifer's body first, and then expecting Carrie to be just as good as that. So I'll talk about Carrie first, because I was not a big fan. And I don't think you should have to end out the podcast hearing me bitch about how much Stephen King hates women. Uh, now I'm not a film major, so some of this I might be pulling out of my ass, but the first thing I noticed about Carrie was like how little sense the scene switches make. I don't know if this was just like a 70s thing... Or just like a Stephen King thing even, because it kind of felt like that when I watched it earlier in the summer too, the 1990s version. I'm too much of a coward to watch the new one. There's way too much blood in that one. Yeah, but like the scene switches were jerky. There wasn't a lot of sense made. Like it didn't make a lot of sense how much time was spent on a scene. And a lot of the scenes could just be cut out completely. But for other reasons and they just didn't make sense. It was... It's a whole thing. Actually, you know, it's not true that that's the first thing I noticed. The first thing I noticed is that it was made by a bunch of perverts, because there are just so many naked teen girls in it. And, like, I understand the first scene takes place in a locker room, and, you know, the inciting action is Carrie gets her first period. But there's ways to do that without being super creepy, Brian De Palma, director of Carrie 1979. As someone who was once a high schooler in a girl's locker room, we don't exactly prance around buck naked, running in slow motion, and sensually rubbing soap across our limbs in the shower. And also the ten minute scene where the girls were working out was yikes. Have you ever watched something and you just knew, you just knew that it was only in this movie because it was someone's fetish? Yeah. Also a lot of the characters just seemed painfully one-dimensional, and there was like there was so little attention given to Carrie's newfound psychic powers, which is weird because that's like the premise of the whole thing. I feel like they really just glossed over that in favor of showing, yes, these girls are bitches. Like, teen girls can be bitchy, but like if one of them gets psychic powers, that's what I would want to focus the story on, you know? 
I don't know, maybe it just wasn't translated well from the book. I wouldn't know. I really tried to read Carrie one time. It's the only Stephen King book I've tried to read and I had to stop before I even got through the locker room scene because it was just so painfully obvious that Stephen King had never had like a meaningful conversation with a woman in his life. I don't know. The movie didn't have a great message either, or at least not a very clear one. The best thing I could get out of it was like, don't bully someone because then they might kill you by burning the school down. Which isn't great. And I know that not every story needs to have a super clear message, but it was just disappointing because I feel like horror is one of the genres where we can sort of explore the anecdotal. We can explore... What's it? Allegorical? Yeah, we can explore the allegorical. That's it. Like, it's so much, it feels a lot easier to do a metaphor in, like, a horror movie as opposed to an action movie, you know? And I know that I am, that's coming from a very, like, literature nerd standpoint. I know that not everyone watched the 1990 It and was like, Oh, I see, it's a complicated metaphor for repressing and overcoming childhood trauma. Like, I know that's not, like, a popular interp- I don't know if that's a popular interpretation, actually. But I know that, like, People don't go into horror movies looking for that. I don't know. Maybe I've just, like, spoiled myself too much with Guillermo del Toro. But that could be its own modern media segment. So maybe we'll do one of those later. We'll talk about Guillermo del del Toro. I'll watch a couple of his. On the bright side, Jennifer's body was fucking fantastic. I feel like it tackled queerness in a way that didn't demonize it too much. (laughs) Haha, get it? Because she's a demon. Yeah, anyway, the the relationship between Needy and Jennifer was shown very much as the middle ground between Jen's relationship with her victims and Needy's relationship with her boyfriend, which I think really showed the conflicting interests of Jennifer and the demon inside of her. Like, the the women-loving women scenes, I guess. I don't... Yeah, the bi- bisexual scenes. <laughs> the gay scenes. We'll call them the gay scenes. I feel like overall, like, the depictions of sex and, you know, the gay scenes were very respectful overall. It was, it wasn't evil because it was queer. It was evil because of a demon, you know, and there was definitely that relationship before the possession took place. The line between Jen's wants and the wants of the demon possessing her were very blurry for part of the, for the lot of the movie, and I really appreciated that. It was Very interesting, left a lot up to interpretation about what Jennifer wanted to do versus what the demon wanted to do. How much was she resisting? How much was she just twisting it into being what she wanted it to be? I think it was really pulled off very well, that internal struggle, without outright stating it. It left a lot up to interpretation. Um, I really feel like the movie flipped the script on like the 70s and 80s slasher flicks. Uh, You know, I haven't seen any of those because, again... I haven't watched horror movies before this year, but I know enough from like the general zeitgeist that the rule is the slut must die, you know? If the girl wants sex, she's gonna die. If she's not a virgin, she's gonna die. If you are currently having sex, you're gonna die. If you're a teenager, you're unmarried, you're thinking about sex, someone's gonna come and stab you. And in this instance, I really didn't feel like any of Jennifer's victims really deserved what happened to them. But it was almost an exact reversal of the trope. They wanted sex, and so they had to die. And I don't know how much of that was. I didn't feel like they deserved it because I wouldn't feel like the chick in, like, a 70s slasher flick wouldn't deserve it. Or if I don't feel that way because of the way we are supposed to 
perceive men in our society as overly sexual or unable to control sexual desire. The succubus angle was also really interesting in conjunction with this. The movie is so focused on how female power in society is so closely linked to like physicality and sexuality, uh, both before and after the possession. And it's made even more obvious by the title Jennifer's Body, like they're reducing her to a body. And so ultimately, I feel like that is what the victims are being punished for, is seeing Jennifer only as a body, only as the shell of this succubus without realizing the deeper motivations. Um, Ultimately, I'd say if you're going to watch one, you should watch Jennifer's Body. Carrie is not worth it. I barely made it through it. Also, if you're looking for more prom nights from hell, check out the song The Ballad of Sarah Berry by Lindsay Mendez. It's a bop. Once again, thank you to everyone for listening. The intro and outro are Sunrise Expedition by Joseph McDade. If you like it, go check him out on Patreon. If you want to reach out to the show or cyberbully me for being a huge fucking nerd, you can follow the show on Twitter at BCImTheWorst and on Tumblr and Instagram at BecauseImTheWorstKindOfPerson. Or send an email to BecauseImTheWorstKindOfPerson at gmail.com. I forgot to mention that last week, but you can send us emails too. I mean me emails. There's no one else helping with the show. (laughs) Transcripts will also be posted on Tumblr. Tune in next week where I'll continue to regale you with the extremely in-depth backstory of a minor character who will likely have very little bearing on the plot. Why? Because I'm the worst kind of person. <laughs>